Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. It's an important day. It's the 77th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Um, and Doug Rex is here. <laughs> so it's an important day. Um, we're going to start uh, by just telling you to get your credit for today. You're going to text in VGG9. It's up on the wall uh, to remind you as you text that in. As you know, once a month we do Cook, Eat, Learn, our culinary medicine education program. Today, um, in addition to the education that was about um, how to prepare yourself for the holiday season and be ready to choose foods wisely, there was also a quiz. And the quiz was list two types of heart-healthy fats and one strategy you use to incorporate more healthy oils and fats into your diet. Pick random. And it actually was at random, was the answer grapeseed oil and olive oil or avocados, and those are all healthy fats. And to incorporate that into the diet, use grapeseed when roasting veggies and always in a vinaigrette, as opposed to other oils, and mash an avocado with diced carrots and tomatoes for a kid-friendly smushy, so to speak. I like that. And our winner was Jessica Kinsey, who should come up and get this. And it's a dark chocolate bar. And if your chocolate has over 60%, this is 70%, cocoa, it is a healthy bar. So there you go. Thank you. All right. And now I'd like to have Doug Robertson come up and introduce today's speaker. Doug, as you know, is a professor of medicine in our department. He's also the section chief of gastroenterology at our White River Junction VA. And you may or may not know that he's also the national co-director of one of the most impressive comparisons of fit testing, immune testing versus colonoscopy, which is an over 15-year program in the VA cooperative study system worth something over $50 million of direct uh, revenues to, the, to this grant. And it's a very impressive thing. He knows a lot about this, and he will introduce Doug. Okay, thank you very much, Rich, and uh, welcome to uh, Medical Grand Rounds. <clears throat> so it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Doug Rex. Uh, Dr. Rex is Distinguished Professor of Medicine at Indiana University School of Medicine, Chancellor's Professor at uh, Purdue University, and Director of Endoscopy at uh, IU. For those that don't know Dr. Rex, he's really a world's expert in endoscopy, specifically uh, colonoscopy, uh, again, both the performance of colonoscopy and the impact or use of colonoscopy in things like colorectal cancer screening and uh, surveillance. So in terms of his training, he graduated summa cum laude from Harvard, uh, went on to IU Medical School where he passed, um, graduated there with highest distinction, and again subsequently went on to the faculty of IU in 1985, and he's been there ever since. Um, if you look through his incredibly impressive CV, he has many, many teaching awards, but perhaps most impressively, um, outstanding teacher uh, at the, in the Introduction to Medicine course five times at uh, IU. And again, his research is equally impressive. He uses his busy uh, clinical practice at IU, where he's doing upwards of 50 colonoscopies, uh, many referral-based colonoscopies in difficult cases. And he uses that information both to develop observational data for clinical studies, as well as perform uh, clinical trials. And in that capacity, he's published over 200 
50 original research papers, again, many, many other publications, 60 book chapters, 220 invited papers, 60 editorials. He's also a thought leader in gastroenterology. He's the chair, the current chair of the U.S. Multi-Society Task Force in Colorectal Cancer. In that capacity, he's published over 40 guidelines. Again, he's the first author of the current U.S. Multi-Society uh, Task Force guidelines on colorectal cancer screening, again, which will be relevant to his talk today. Uh, somewhere he finds the time to contribute lots of service, both at IU and to our GI organizations. He's a past president of the American College of Gastroenterology. He's the current treasurer of the American Society of Gastrointestinal Endoscopy. Uh, in addition, it's not surprising given the trajectory of his career, he's received some of our GI Society's highest awards. Uh, relatively recently, he received the Rudolf Schindler Award from the ASGE. That's the highest award that the American Society of Gastrointestinal Endoscopy offers. And then finally, on a personal note, I've had the opportunity to work with Doug both on the task force and uh, at these national meetings. I've had the opportunity to see him work. He's a clear thinker clear communicator, really the one of the most sought-after speakers at these national meetings. And I think it's not an overstatement to say that he's personally raised the bar on the practice of colonoscopy in the United States. Through his teaching, through his videos, through his practical clinical research, he impacts the day-to-day -day work that all clinical colonoscopists do for the better. And so we've been fortunate to have him practice for these many years, and it's great to have him here this morning. So without further ado, Doug Rex. Thank you, Doug, for that very kind introduction. Can you hear me okay? Good morning uh, to all of you. I want to thank uh, Corey for inviting me. I want to congratulate Corey and Rich for putting together a fantastic uh, GI division here at Dartmouth. I sort of feel like I'm part of it because I've collaborated with so many of the members, Joe and Lynn, Corey, on uh, prep studies um, and uh, Doug and Joe and I are on the U.S. Multi-Society Task Force, so it's only a nine-member uh, task force. So right now, a third of it is in this little corner of the uh, of the room right here. But I, I really appreciate that. I, I, these guys have tremendous expertise in colon cancer screening. They did not need me to come and give a talk uh, about this, but they were kind enough to ask me to visit. So. So here I am to talk about screening. I am going to focus mostly on screening, which means trying to find early colon cancers and precancerous lesions in people who themselves have never had such lesions. If they have, we say that they're in surveillance, and we'll touch on that a little bit at the end, and also people who don't have uh, symptoms. And I think everybody um, sort of agrees that, that you should be offering screening. I'll try to talk a little bit about uh, the individual tests and sort of give you an overall sense of that. So an initial uh, concept that's of interest, this is data showing the risk of colon cancer in the right versus the left colon after you've had uh, a colonoscopy. And it shows that we do not do as well at protecting people from right-sided cancer as we do from left-sided cancer. In the left side, when you have a colonoscopy, the uh, protection level is greater than 80%. Uh, in the U.S. and Germany, where you could argue that the evidence is that colonoscopy is the best in, in the world, in the U.S. and in uh, Germany, um, we protect perhaps about 40 to 60 percent of uh, colon cancer. So I'm going to try to, if you come out of the end of the lecture and you sort of have an understanding for why that might be, you'll know a lot about uh, precancerous lesions uh, in the colon. So we will come back to that. 
I want to say a little bit about the molecular basis. I am very much a clinician, and uh, but I think in this instance, it's useful to know a little bit about the molecular basis because it sort of correlates with some significant uh, clinical points. And, you know, we say that the molecular features of every colorectal cancer is unique, but yet there are sort of three overall themes. And one of these, the most common one, is the chromosomal instability pathway. It accounts for the majority of colon cancers. These people develop by accumulating mutations in tumor suppressor genes and oncogenes. The uh, tumors have microsatellite stability, and the precursor lesion is the conventional adenoma, and the process is slow. This uh, thing we do of doing colonoscopy every 10 years is sort of ideally suited to preventing cancers that go through this pathway because this process of accumulating sporadic mutations is relatively slow. We're seeing evidence that probably we could do colonoscopy every 15 years, and we may eventually see as colonoscopy gets better and better that you could have colonoscopy once in your lifetime, maybe at around age 60 or so. And if you don't have anything in your colon, the probability would be very high that you would never get uh, colon cancer. There also is the Lynch uh, pathway. This is the most common inherited colon cancer syndrome. These people are born with mutations, uh, germline mutations, in one of the so-called mismatch repair genes. These genes uh, are, create a protein complex that goes along DNA, identifies errors, and repairs it. And uh, these tumors are microsatellite unstable. Microsatellites, of course, are little short repeating sequences of DNA that are very prone to deletion mutations if you have a mutation in one of these uh, genes. And the precursor lesion is, for the most part, thought to be the adenoma again, the conventional uh, adenoma. But what's different about this from a clinical standpoint is that because of the mechanism by which mutations accumulate, uh, the mutations can accumulate very quickly, and we think that adenomas can turn into cancer faster, and that's why we colonoscope patients with Lynch syndrome every year or two instead of every 10 years. Sort of the, the newest um, pathway on the block, the one that gets a lot of discussion among, in the GI community, is called the SIMP pathway, or this is one of the names for it. SIMP stands for CP island methylator phenotype. And this is basically a hypermethylation pathway. The mutations occur by hypermethylation, usually the promoter region of some gene, so it's an epigenetic uh, phenomenon. It accounts for a minority but a significant fraction of colon cancers. The tumors are characterized by mutations in the BRAF gene. BRAF is an oncogene that's in the same uh, pathway, the same signaling pathway as KRAS. Colorectal cancers are usually mutated in either KRAS or BRAF, typically not both. And this group of tumors is mutated in BRAF. About half of them are microsatellite unstable. And the mechanism by which they get that way is epigenetic inactivation of the MLH1 uh, gene. And we think that that may be associated with uh, faster progression to cancer in some instances. And the most important thing from a clinical standpoint is that the precursor lesion is different than the adenoma. It falls into a class that we call serrated lesions. It looks entirely different uh, endoscopically. It looks very different to the pathologist under the microscope. And clearly, we'd like mechanisms to screen for colon cancer to identify this whole set of precancerous lesions and prevent cancers going through 
uh, any of these pathways. And you can sort of see how these different features uh, lead us to potentially different strategies. You'll see how some of the screening tests can, are better at detecting one kind of precancerous lesion uh, than another. So about these precancerous lesions. So the whole idea of screening, we want to find early cancers. The, one of the unique things about screening for colon cancer is that we have the potential to actually prevent cancers. As I'll show you, the incidence of colon cancer is declining in the United States. And part of that, at least, is that we're removing so many precancerous lesions from people's colons uh, in the context of doing colonoscopy. So we have these two groups of lesions. And just to make sure we're all on the same page and understand them, one of them is the adenomas. I like to refer to them as the conventional adenomas, the ones you remember from medical school as the main precancerous lesion. All of these are dysplastic. Uh, they look hyperchromatic on the histologic um, slide. And so when somebody says they've got a dysplastic adenoma, that's kind of redundant. Uh, we ask the pathologist to characterize the dysplasia as either low grade or high grade. If you get a report back on a pathology um, report of a tubular adenoma, it doesn't say anything about dysplasia. You can pretty much assume that it had low grade uh, dysplasia. The overwhelming majority of them have low grade. And then the other way we characterize them is their velocity. Uh, tubular means that the glands look very organized. Uh, less common is a sort of frond-like growth of the, of the glands that we refer to as villus. If there's a mixture, it's called tubular villus. Villus is worse. It's associated with a greater chance of high-grade dysplasia and cancer. So that's the adenomas uh, that account for the chromosomal instability pathway, the, the main uh, group of, of colorectal cancers. Then there's the serrated class, again, this, this new class. And the main uh, culprit here is the sessile serrated polyp or sessile serrated adenoma. You'll see both of those terms. And it's important to understand that they are virtually and absolutely synonymous uh, terms. A new term that's emerging is sessile serrated lesion. And that also is synonymous with SSP and, uh, and SSA. And then there's a rarer lesion called a traditional serrated adenoma that in clinical practice is very commonly uh, mistaken for a tubulovillus adenoma. Lots of, the, lots of people practicing have, have never seen a pathology report of a traditional serrated adenoma because every time they've ever removed one, their pathologist called it a tubulovillus adenoma, something up here in the conventional adenoma class. It's a relatively uh, rare lesion. Now, I want to say a little bit more about the serrated group because it includes a set of polyps that we think are not precancerous. Not really sure if that's the case, but the general theory is that this group of polyps we call hyperplastic polyps. They tend to be relatively small, mostly in the distal colon, and they're not precancerous. So when you get uh, a pathology report back that says uh, hyperplastic polyps, and especially if they're just small lesions in the lower colon, we sort of view that as the patient had a normal colonoscopy. It'd be the equivalent of going to the dermatologist and having a skin tag uh, removed or something. Uh, and then on the other hand, we have the SSPs, and these are relatively common lesions. They're, they are distributed more toward the proximal colon, and the overwhelming majority of them are not dysplastic. This is part of the reason that I, I'm, I would be one of these. I don't like the term sessile serrated adenoma because I mentioned to you that adenomas, the conventional adenomas, are all dysplastic. So when you use a term like sessile serrated adenoma, to many people that means the lesion is dysplastic. Even though we think that these are precancerous, the overwhelming majority are not uh, dysplastic. 
and we would like for the pathologist to actually designate whether it is. So we want to see on the report sesalcerated polyp without cytological dysplasia, or if it has cytological dysplasia, then we'd like that to be uh, said. And that is considered a more advanced lesion than one that doesn't have it. And I'll show you what that, what that means. And then there's this traditional uh, serrated adenoma. Again, a relatively rare lesion. It's kind of unique from uh, its uh, endoscopic appearance, its molecular profile, its appearance under the, under the microscope. Now, <clears throat> what is it that, that sort of separates a sessile serrated polyp from a hyperplastic polyp? And I'll tell you, this is incredibly tricky business. And we are in a transition period where the pathologists are catching up with this. And we, as gastroenterologists taking out polyps, are seeing remarkable increases in the apparent prevalence of sessile serrated polyps, partly because we're getting better at seeing them, and partly because the pathologists are just kind of catching on to calling them. Okay, So this has been observed in uh, multiple settings and published this trend. One of the problems with, with differentiating them is that different definitions are in use for what a sessile serrated polyp is. But the fundamental difference is that when you look at these lesions under low power, the glands of a, of a hyperplastic polyp, and the one that is most confusing is called a microvesicular hyperplastic polyp, are very straight, and the glands are sort of have uniform diameter, whereas in an SSP at low power, the glands are distorted. They may look dilated. They may sort of grow laterally. When those kind of changes are present in a lot of the polyp, it's very easy for the pathologist to call it. But if only one or two glands is affected, you get a lot of inner observer variation, even between expert pathologists, in telling you uh, whether the polyp is an SSP uh, or a hyperplastic polyp. But that's the main difference. This lesion has no, however, neither one of these lesions have any dysplasia. Uh, in them. But yet this one is considered to be a precancerous one, and conventionally we sort of think this one isn't. It gets a little f funky, especially when they get big, because the molecular profiles of the two lesions are, are pretty similar. So I just point out these papers, which have, have shown this high level of inter-observer variation in pathologists trying to differentiate SSP from uh, HP. And here's the same SSP that we saw before, this completely non-dysplastic lesion. So what is the SSP that has dysplasia in it? Well, in, in most cases, what it is, is there's an area, it's a region of the polyp that under the microscope looks like a conventional adenoma. And we used to see these back in the 1980s, and at that time, they were often referred to as mixed hyperplastic adenomatous polyps. And that's because they were all the, the serrated portion was being called hyperplastic. But what is actually present is a, is a mixture of elements that look like SSP. And then this part right here, which looks like a conventional uh, adenoma. But the significance of this is that this is thought to be a more advanced lesion, closer to something that could turn into cancer. So again, we have this serrated pathway. And nobody knows for sure if it starts out in some cases as a hyperplastic polyp. Eventually, the glands develop changes of an SSP. And uh, then perhaps at some point, it, it develops cytological dysplasia and then turns into cancer. And this step, when it gets dysplasia, is thought maybe can happen fast again. And it's because that dysplastic area uh, has been shown to have microsatellite instability in it. You remember I mentioned in the Lynch syndrome that if there's microsatellite instability present, you can get this more rapid conversion uh, to cancer. So this, in, the, in, the, in clinical practice, tends to raise a lot of fear about these lesions. 
Uh, I, I think most of it's probably misplaced, but yet there is, there is a polyp to cancer sequence here. This is some evidence that it doesn't really occur that much uh, more quickly than it does for conventional adenomas. We say, you know, it probably takes 10 to 20 years for an adenoma, conventional adenoma, that's going to become cancer to actually do it. And that was actually derived from data a long time ago, just looking at different sort of progressively more advanced adenomas in cancer and looking at the ages at which those things were identified. And it sort of was taking 15 to 20 years. You can find similar data for uh, sessile serrated polyps. And actually, the prevalence of cancer in these lesions uh, for given size is actually lower than it is for conventional adenomas. But yet, we've got a, uh, uh, a separate clear pathway. Now, I just want to make this comment about the histology of colon polyps, partly because you, know, you, you all, even if you're in primary care, you probably see a lot of pathology reports coming back on your uh, patients. We commonly see primary care doctors looking back through their patient's chart, checking to see if everything is up to date, looking at a pathology report and saying, you know, you're not, you're due for your colonoscopy. Sometimes they're coming back and wanting their follow-up colonoscopy before we think it's necessary uh, based on the, the uh, pathologist's or the primary care doctor's review of the pathology report. There are a lot of things about colon polyp histology reports that we tend to take with a grain of salt. And so the issue is like, what are the pathologists really good at? And I think there are a couple of things. One is putting polyps into these overall two big categories, with the exception of the TSA. As I mentioned, the TSA is often interpreted as a tubulovillus adenoma. But with regard to hyperplastic plus the SSPs versus the conventional adenomas, they're good at that. And I think pathologists are also very good at recognizing cancer. We define cancer clinically as invasion of the submucosa in the colon. That's the way we define it. And I think that that is something that tend tends to be done accurately. However, a lot of these features like tubular versus tubulovillus, the degree of dysplasia, tumor differentiation in cancers, and as I've already mentioned, SSP versus HP, there's a very significant degree of inner observer uh, variation. Some, some, like the British, they do not even consider uh, villus elements or dysplasia grade in their post-polypectomy surveillance intervals because there's so much variation between the pathologists in uh, interpreting that. So, uh, you know, I, I often say if you don't like the answer you get the first time, go and ask another pathologist, you know, to get the, you might get the answer that you want with regard to, uh, to a given polyp. So here, again, to summarize, these are, I'm, trying, I'm trying to give you a sense, you know, of the different classes of lesions that we're dealing with. But we've got the serrated lesions, which includes our, our two precancerous classes, and then the hyperplastics. And again, the hyperplastics are, tend to be very small lesions, more in the distal colon, with low or very low malignant potential. The SSPs, which are considerably common, sessile or flat, can be quite big, tend to be proximal, and have significant potential. And then the TSAs. In, in, uh, these lesions, however, are rare. And they have, uh, they're more obvious endoscopically. They're either bulky or occasionally even pedunculated. They mostly are in the distal colon, and they're also precancerous. But if you look at this, you can see that the main lesion that we're worried about in clinical practice is the sessile serrated polyp, in the, because it's common. And the other feature of that you'll see is that this is a polyp to cancer sequence that is occur occurring more in the proximal colon than in the, than in the distal colon. 
whereas the, the adenoma pathway tends to be more evenly uh, distributed. Okay, now, this is a slide that then summarizes all the precancerous lesions. Uh, and it's divided here, the top three rows are the adenomas, the conventional adenomas, and the bottom two are our two serrated lesions, and it classifies them according to their most frequent shapes by this thing called the Paris classification, which you can basically consider as, as either things are obvious, they're sticking up like you know a golf ball cut in half or the Epcot center thing, um, or they're very flat, they're subtle. Now this is amazing in colonoscopy, but we spend a huge amount of time talking about something so simple as shape, because it defines to a large extent whether or not things get missed during colonoscopy. And it's also true for any other imaging type test. If you order a barium enema or a CT colonography, a huge factor in whether or not something actually gets detected is something so mundane as its shape, all right? And there's a lot of stuff in the colon that is quite subtle uh, in shape. And type two in the Paris classification defines this uh, flat or depressed uh, shape in the colon. And if you look at the distribution, you'll see that both the flat and depressed adenomas and the sessile serrated polyps are shifted into the right colon. So that may be some of the reason why, why at least at colonoscopy, we're not as effective in preventing cancer on the right side as the left side, as we're just more likely to miss things. And if you look at people who've had a colonoscopy and then develop cancer, uh, there's clearly a shift in distribution towards lesions that went through the serrated pathway, suggesting that at least missing these things is part of what is uh, accounting for that. This is a um, conventional adenoma, kind of a bulky one, and these little brown squiggling lines on the surface of this thing are blood vessels. And that's one of the key features in terms of its appearance endoscopically compared to serrated lesions. It's got uh, a lot of blood vessels. Here is a very flat one. The brown squiggly lines are blood vessels. Here, on the other hand, is a serrated lesion. Serrated lesions are sort of notorious for their subtle appearance. And this one has a few little lacy vessels, but you can see it doesn't have that concentration of blood vessels on the surface of it. So one of the tests that we use commonly to screen for colon cancer, right, is the fecal immunochemical test. It's a stool test for blood. And when you look at these pictures, you can understand, and I'll show you the data, that the fecal immunochemical test, it does reasonably well with large uh, adenomas, but it doesn't detect serrated lesions. It detects some of them indirectly because some patients have both adenomas and serrated lesions. But this is almost certainly the reason for it. They don't bleed because they don't have blood vessels on the surface. And <clears throat> colonoscopists get very good at just looking at the lesion and predicting based on, on how it looks as to whether it's an adenoma uh, or a serrated lesion. This is another sessile serrated polyp. It's got mucus on the surface of it. It has some little black dots, which are the pits, but this one has no blood vessels on it. Very, very many of them, lots of them, have virtually no blood vessels on the surface. So this becomes a limitation uh, for the FIT test. This is a, a normal area of mucosa. This is a very flat sessile serrated polyp, and I just show this to emphasize the subtlety of it. I'll come back to showing you that 
colonoscopists miss things, and probably we miss more of these sessile serrated polyps than we do of the uh, conventional adenomas. Here's an interesting lesion. We talked about the sessile serrated polyp that has cytological dysplasia, and I mentioned that's a mixture of things. You can see that mixture on a histologic slide. You can also see it through a colonoscope. So on the right of this white line, that's normal mucosa, and this part of the slide is all sessile serrated polyp, very flat, and right here you can see an area that looks browner. It looks browner because it has these blood vessels in it. That's the dysplastic portion of a sessile serrated polyp with cytological dysplasia. Again, a more advanced lesion that we want to make sure that we get out. So I, I, I said all of that just to kind of give you the backdrop of, of what we're trying to find when we screen for colon cancer. This is the array of precancerous lesions that we are after. Changing topic. It's, it's, you know, we got to talk about the fact that the epidemiology of, the, of colorectal cancer is changing in a couple of ways. Incidence rates for people over 50 in the United States are declining. They started declining in 1985. 1985, if you'll remember, was the year that President Reagan's colon cancer was diagnosed. And rates, incidence rates began to drop at about 1% to 2% per year. Just after 2000, the rate of decline accelerated to 3 to 4% per year. So in the first decade of this century, incidence rates of colorectal cancer dropped by 30% in people over age 50 in the United States. Reasons are probably multifactorial, but part of it has to do with screening, that we screen people over the age of 50. At the same time, we've seen incidence rates in people under the age of 50 rise, and nobody really understands uh, what's going on with that. But uh, because of these differences with regard to age, the percentage of all colorectal cancers occurring in people under the age of 50 has about doubled uh, in the U.S. And I'm sure you've heard, and we'll come back to this, that the American Cancer Society recently recommended that we begin screening everybody at age 45 rather than age 50. And a significant fraction of this increase in incidence, the percentage of the cases, does occur in that 45 to 50 age group. But it's a birth cohort effect. So as you go down progressively younger ages, people in their 30s, people in their 20s, the relative incidence is increasing more in people in their 20s than it is in people in their 30s than it is in people in their 40s. Sort of the absolute risk, of course, is decreasing with age, but the relative increase is, uh, is higher in the younger age group, suggesting it's a birth cohort effect. And this you know, leads to this sort of, even if you're not going to screen, you still have to take symptoms, uh, you know, I think, very seriously in young people, especially bleeding symptoms. And so if there's blood in the toilet, you know, we say sort of all bets are off. You need to think about um, making a clear diagnosis. If you're not going to do a colonoscopy, if you're going to do a flex sig or an anoscopy, you want to diagnose, make a diagnosis, treat it, bring the patient back, and make sure that the symptoms uh, have resolved. And the, you know, part of the reason for that is, the, is that the number of years of life lost, if somebody has a delay in the, in the diagnosis of colorectal cancer when they're young, is, is very great. So that's what's happening with epidemiology. Now, what about screening recommendations? Well, I think probably the recommendations that many primary care physicians feel are the most important are the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommendations. 
And they're the ones, of course, that are, that are sort of uh, guide CMS. CMS officially is supposed to follow the US PSTF recommendations. And one thing they've said for a long time is that colorectal cancer screening gets a grade A recommendation, which means we believe it works and you should be offering it. And so I would sort of take that as a, a standard of care. We, we have seen evidence that in the entire area of gastrointestinal disease, more than half of the medical legal risk for primary care physicians is in delay in the diagnosis of colorectal cancer. And very commonly in the past, it's been ignoring symptoms, particularly rectal bleeding symptoms, or not working them up. But more and more over the last 10, 20 years, we've seen failure to screen as a reason for uh, lawsuits against primary care physicians. So it's good to have this in your sort of you know, mind as you're, as you're reviewing what patients uh, need and are up to date with. The USPSTF does not rank the tests. And this is a very common philosophy in colorectal cancer screening is that the most important thing we need to do is get more and more of the population screened. You know, the, the National Colorectal Cancer Roundtable set a goal of 80% of the eligible population screened by this year, 2018, and we didn't make it. We hit levels of about 60% for screening, and then it has leveled off uh, over recent years, and it doesn't seem to be uh, improving that much. So they say, don't worry so much uh, about what test a patient gets. Make sure that they get some tests done. And uh, they say to screen between 50 and 75 years, stop at 85, individualize between 75 and 85. So take into account the patient's general health, uh, their, their sort of life expectancy. Now, I, I will say that this is a screening thing, right? So the idea is that if you've screened patients repeatedly up to about age 75, and they've never had anything, it's probably reasonable to stop. You should also remember, however, that the incidence of colon cancer keeps rising with age, and the median age to get colon cancer in the United States is 73. So almost half of the, the population that gets it gets it after age 73. And I often see people confuse this recommendation with surveillance, because in the surveillance population, that is people who have had previous polyps or cancer, we take sort of a different approach. We do try to figure out when we're going to stop. Like say, you know, somebody's had only very small polyps or they hit their late 70s and they just had a colonoscopy and they just had little tiny polyps, it's reasonable to stop. But there's also a group of people that are older that have significant polyps and we're not necessarily going to stop in those people because they remain at high risk and we'll keep going at least until we're confident that we've cleared all of the precancerous stuff out of their colon. And sometimes that takes two, three uh, colonoscopies to do it. So remember, that's a, that whole thing about stopping, those recommendations have been made about screening. They haven't necessarily been made about surveillance. And you have to sort of individualize that depending on age, life expectancy, patient's wishes, and most importantly, how much stuff has been found in their colon at their recent colonoscopy. The American Cancer Society, they really sort of rocked the boat recently by coming out with this recommendation to begin screening at age 45. And they said it was a qualified recommendation. Their other category is a strong recommendation. So this, this, this created some angst, right? Because it's kind of like, well, if you think it's qualified, like what needs to happen in order to make it a strong recommendation? And does it really need to be followed? 
Despite that, they're, they are heavily promoting it. They're lobbying insurance companies to pay for screening beginning at, uh, at age 45. They based it on modeling data that included this new information about uh, incidence rates, and it suggested that it was reasonably cost-effective to move down to 45. Like the USPSTF, there's no ranking of the, the tests. Now, a couple other things that I think are important to think about in, in, uh, in screening. One of them is that there's sort of two approaches that are taken. The best approach is really what is often referred to as organized or programmatic screening. This is where you have a healthcare system that actually uh, develops a, a way to systematically offer screening tests to the whole population. In the US, the best example of this is the Kaiser system in California. So they send out fecal immunochemical tests to their entire eligible population. They've got a whole team of people that sends them out, tracks the results, makes sure the patients that are positive uh, get their follow-up colonoscopies. The other approach, which is actually most common in the United States, is office-based or opportunistic testing. This means that you see a patient in the office, and now it's your responsibility to figure out what all they need to get done, make the offer, and do it, and then you've got to do the follow-up stuff too. So this is a problem because most of us don't have the resources to do it in a systematic way, right? We're not going to call people back to make sure they get their annual fecal immunochemical test. And so I think a general trend is that the more frequently something has to be done, the more of a struggle it is in the opportunistic setting as opposed to the organized or uh, programmatic setting. And in the U.S., you know, we've come to rely on colonoscopy, and part of the beauty of that is that if it's negative, you don't have to worry about it for 10 years. Your patient's up to date for 10 years. There also, I think, are, are multiple ways to offer screening in this opportunistic setting, uh, to talk about it with patients. One of the ones that's often advocated is multiple options. That is, you know, I really want my patient to get screened, so what I'm going to do is take the test and explain all of them, the pros, the cons, the costs, the risks, and so on. Well, you know, the reality is that, that we've got six or seven tests that are available, and nobody's got the time to do that, right? Uh, but there's a lot to be uh, said for it. Basically, I think the literature suggests that having two options is probably reasonable. Um, and there's pretty good data that once you go above two, you don't get any improvement in adherence rates. But having a couple of options is good. Then there's sequential testing. This has been actually the most common one in the United States. The idea is you start with one test that you think is the most effective, usually colonoscopy. You say, I really, you know, it's, it's time now for you to have your colonoscopy. And you talk about that a little bit. And the patient says, okay. They, they say, yes, you're done. If they say no, though, you offer the next test. And there ought to be some additional offer of at least one or two more tests before you say this patient refuses screening. But sequential testing has the opportunity to maximize adherence rates overall and maximize the use of the most uh, effective test. And that's been very common in the United States. Risk stratified screening basically says, you know, there's 80 million people in the United States that are eligible for uh, colorectal cancer screening, and in fact, there's a wide range of risk within that population. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose colonoscopy for the people I can tell by certain features just looking at them. So men are more likely than women to have big polyps. The older you get, the more likely you are. 
the heavier you are, if you're diabetic, if you're a smoker, all these things are risk factors. So if I've got a 65-year-old man who is overweight, has metabolic syndrome and a history of smoking, I'm going to send him straight to colonoscopy. He's probably got multiple polyps and maybe one or two big ones. But I'm going to take my 50-year-old female marathon-running vegans uh, and offer them some non-invasive test because their, their risk of having uh, a substantial lesion is much lower. That's the basis of risk stratification. And it's got an entire science, modeling science behind it that supports it. And, and but for the most part, we're not doing it, but it makes a substantial amount of sense. I want to touch a little bit about the, the multi-sided task force guidelines. These, this is the, the, uh, the team that represents the GI society. So this is the GI perspective on screening. This is the one that, that Doug and uh, Joe and I are on, the U.S. multi-sided task force. The task force recommends that we begin screening at age 45 in African Americans. Now, that recommendation was first made by the American College of Gastroenterology about 13 or 14 years ago. And the, it's very controversial uh, because it's not clear that the yield of screening in African Americans is higher. But it is clear that they get more colorectal cancers that get them at a younger age. Uh, they have lower screening rates. And so part of the value of this is just to, to bring out the issue that we have with, uh, with colorectal cancer in African Americans. But the data on it is, uh, is a little bit mixed. The tests, however, are ranked uh, according to a variety of features, some of which I think are, are pretty uh, practical. So here is, the, here is the ranking. And I'm going to focus on three of the tests. Uh, the Tier 1 tests, which are colonoscopy every 10 years and annual FIT, and the multi-sided task force says these, this should be the core of your armamentarium for screening. But there's one other that we need to talk about, and that's Cologuard. Because, for one, it's, you know, it's being advertised all the time, right, on TV. Patients are asking you uh, about it. I think you need to understand uh, Cologuard. I'm not going to say much about FlexSig. FlexSig has a fantastic uh, mul multiple randomized controlled trials supporting that it works. Nobody does it anymore, right? I mean, I haven't done a screening FlexSig in years. The, the 50 that I do, that's colonoscopy, that's 50-plus per week. But I, I almost never do a FlexSig on a screening uh, basis. CT colonography, this is virtual colonoscopy. It's been around for 25 years. Its impact on screening uh, overall in the United States has been trivial, uh, not, not really worth uh, discussing. Cologuard, capsule colonoscopy, this is, um, you've heard of capsule for the small bowel. You can do capsule colonoscopy. It's not, I'm not going to say too much about it. But the whole concept of cleaning the colon out uh, in order to look at it with an imaging test that can't remove polyps has just not uh, really matched up with colonoscopy, the power of, of colonoscopy. And then the first blood test that's come along is such a poor test that the task force says don't even, don't, not just like, you know, put it in the back, just don't use it, period. It's that bad. So I'm going to focus on these others. Now, I want to say a little bit word about FIT. The multi-sided task force has a separate document about FIT. It's an incredibly good document, and it's written by Doug Robertson. And uh, it basically describes um, uh, everything you'd want to know about how to do FIT, and how, to, how to evaluate it, quality measurements uh, with regard to FIT. And FIT is one of the Tier 1 tests. To understand Cologuard, it's important to understand that Cologuard includes a FIT test, okay? And the FIT test is a very important part of Cologuard. The other part it has 
are specific DNA assays. And part of, of this are assays that are hypermethylation based. Okay? So that's going to be an important thing too. This is the pivotal trial uh, about Cologuard. And this is the sensitivity over here uh, and specificity. Um, this is, actually, this is uh, specificity down here. This is not just fecal DNA. This is the fit plus the fecal DNA compared to the fit alone. So you can see what you get when you go from fit to fecal DNA. Here you get about a 20% gain in sensitivity for cancer when you go from fit to fecal DNA. Now, I would say overall, the literature suggests that the sensitivity of one-time fit testing for cancer is about 80%. Okay, so it's a little bit higher than this, but in this study, that was the gain. Um, the biggest difference is in the serrated lesions. I mentioned before that fit does not test, uh, find the serrated lesions. So you can see that goes up by a factor of eight because, remember, those lesions are hypermethylated, and the methylation assays uh, pick up some of the large serrated lesions. That's the single, from a sensitivity standpoint, distinguishing feature of Cologuard. The specificity drops, okay? And that's one of the downsides. The false positive rate goes from 4, 5, 6% up to 12, 13%. Okay, so that's the downside. The other part of it is the cost, right? The cost is $600, $650 versus a fit test is 22 bucks, okay? The fit test is done annually, so uh, we wonder, when you do the fit test annually, will it catch up with the fecal DNA plus fit test in terms of sensitivity? It might catch up in terms of specificity, too, right? Because if you do it every three years and you got 4 or 5% false positives each year, you know, it may not be that much better in terms of specificity. So those are the main features of the fit and the fecal DNA. The advantages of Cologuard... I think one of them is performed every three years. You get back to this thing, how am I going to keep my patients up to date with colorectal cancer screening? It's easier in an office practice to do a test that's done every 10 years or it's done every three years than it is every year. And I don't know about your place, but at my place, the primary care physicians get a report about the percentage of their patients that are up to date with colorectal cancer screening. It's one of their quality ratings. They don't get any help with actually doing it, uh, but they get a report about how well they're, they're doing it. The other part is that Exact has a navigation program to complete the test. So you, you, when you order the test, it gets sent to the patient, and if they don't do it, Exact starts calling them and, and telling them to do it. And the other thing that, that I've started seeing now, because I've, I've ordered them sometimes, is that when it's due in three years, they send you a reminder to order it again. So I think that's really good because, again, we don't have the resources to navigate the whole process in our, uh, in our offices. The limitations of it. First of all, in modeling studies, it is dominated by FIT. FIT is not only more effective, it is more cost-effective to do FIT than it is uh, Cologuard. And that's the reason why, that's a fundamentally the reason why the multi-sided task force made it Tier 2 and not Tier 1. The specificity is lower, and the problem gets worse with age. And this is important to know because the hypermethylation is an age-related phenomenon, right? So the specificity uh, is better. The false positive rate is lower in 50-year-olds than 80-year-olds by a very substantial fraction. So this is not a great test, really, in people in their 70s. You're going to get, if you're trying to avoid a colonoscopy, you're going to get a lot of false positives. I encourage people... 
uh, especially if they, if they want to do a non-invasive test when they're in their 70s and 80s, do a fit because of the very high false positive rate. It probably reaches 20% plus after 75 to 80 years of age. No evidence to support its use outside of screening. It may well work, but we're seeing a lot of people who've had polyps and have now decided that they're going to you know, get Cologuard. It hasn't been studied in that setting. may work, but we don't know. And uh, um, so anyway, that's the basis for this thing, keeping colonoscopy and fit as the core. But I think it's good to understand uh, Cologuard. OK, that's my discussion of the, of the tests. Don't have anything more. I better check the clock. Game pretty late. I want to say just a couple words about about colonoscopy. Um, there is no randomized controlled trial. Doug is performing one of the randomized controlled trials comparing fit to colonoscopy. But it's going to be a while before we have the uh, the results of that. There's a lot of indirect evidence though that colonoscopy prevents uh, incidence and mortality. And I mentioned some of this evidence that it probably works for a really long time. Now. One of the problems with colonoscopy is that it's operator dependent, okay? That's a thing about, that's good about Cologuard, it's not operator dependent. Colonoscopy is operator dependent, and I mean seriously operator dependent, okay? <laughs> it, we're, not, we're, we're, we're not talking like as ultrasound is to CT, we're talking way more than that sort of variation uh, in performance. I'll show you this uh, data. These are from different groups, and this is what we call the adenoma detection rate. We now use a, a measure of colonoscopy sort of detection skills as the percentage of people undergoing screening colonoscopy who have one or more conventional adenomas detected. And this is the range uh, between members of the same group. It's threefold to sixfold, and this has just been seen repeatedly. All, all, every study that looks at it shows these, these sorts of variations in performance. If you express this differently as total numbers of adenomas detected, you start seeing tenfold uh, variation. So what that means is there are some people doing colonoscopy who are missing more than 90% of the neoplasia in the, col in the colon. They're, they're, they would have been better off just not going through the prep and the cost and the sedation and everything because they didn't really get their colon looked at. That's, that's how operator-dependent uh, the procedure can be. When we look at serrated lesions, the range between highest and lowest operators in the same group, it goes up even more. Again, supporting the idea that we probably miss more. This is uh, evidence of variation in cancer prevention. This was the first evidence, came from a Polish screening colonoscopy study. So when this ADR thing was first presented, it was said, if you're going to do screening colonoscopy, you should find one or more conventional adenomas in at least 20% of the patients that you're screening. So this are the ADRs of, Pol of Polish uh, doctors that were below 20%. This is the hazard ratio for development of cancer in their patients compared to doctors who were meeting the thresholds, 10 to 12 times higher. Okay, that's, that's pretty significant. Then we saw a much larger study, much more powerful, from, again, the Kaiser Group in California, more than 700 interval cancers. And interval cancer is when somebody goes and has a colonoscopy, and then develops cancer before their next colonoscopy would be due. And this group found that there was a 3% reduction in the risk of an interval cancer and a 5% reduction in mortality for each 1% increase in the ADR. So that's, that's, that's uh, pretty powerful evidence that it's operator dependent. So the issue becomes how do you get a good colonoscopy? 
And how do you get your patients uh, a good uh, colonoscopy? And uh, hopefully everybody's tracking these. I th- this is one of the best colorectal cancer groups in the country. I'm sure they're, they're uh, tracking this. They may not be publishing it. I don't know. We don't publish ours either. But if you wanted to know what you'd want, first of all, is you would ask somebody, right? And uh, the first, I think the first sign is that they're unwilling to tell you, you probably should go somewhere else because they probably either haven't measured it or it's not a very good number. But really, if you want a very high-quality um, colonoscopy, you, you want somebody who does it carefully. And then split-dosing the preparation. And I say this for the primary care physicians because I got, I got a call from one of the deans the other night uh, who was scheduled for a colonoscopy with me early in the morning. And the instructions were get up and take the second half of the prep at 2 o'clock in the morning. And he called me up and he said, what's the evidence base for this? This is, <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> I've had three colonoscopies before, and I never had to do this. There's an enormous evidence base that the bowel preparation is better when you take half of it or all of it close in proximity to the procedure. And the reason for it is that you can clean all the stool out of the colon, and then if you wait even like 12, 14, 16 hours, the right colon starts accumulating chyme, and it's very sticky. And remember where we said the flat and subtle lesions are? They're in the right side of the colon. So that's why we ask people to take half or even all of the prep close in proximity. So we're not crazy when we ask people with early morning appointments to, to get up and, uh, and take part of the prep. They don't like it, but you want, we want the colon to look like this, and that's what split dosing does. So I say also, you know, if, if, if you, you go get a colonoscopy and somebody doesn't split dose your prep, they're not really serious about trying to find lesions in your colon. Uh, other things with, with regard to the rec, I'll, recs, I'll just say family history, you always want to consider Lynch syndrome. We place the emphasis on first-degree relatives. And we also, the age at which they were diagnosed with cancer or advanced adenomas. So this, this sort of whole thing hasn't changed much. If there are two first-degree relatives or one who was diagnosed under the age of 60, then we start at 40 or 10 years before the age at diagnosis of the youngest affected relative, and this group should get colonoscopy at five-year intervals. This is the only time we preferentially say colonoscopy. So if dad had colorectal cancer when he was 80, our guidelines say, they've always said, that you uh, can screen that person however you think is appropriate. And if you use colonoscopy, it doesn't have to be done every five years. It can be done every 10 years uh, under those circumstances. We do say you should start at, uh, at 40. So uh, I, just, I just point that out. I'm going to skip surveillance. I, I just say uh, just one thing, and that because I know that, that you guys look at these things too. But we, what we're trying to do in the surveillance, the, the people who've had polyps and cancer, is stratify them by their risk. And there's a group of people we think are pretty low risk, those with one to two tubular adenomas less than uh, 10 millimeters in size. The current guidelines says scope them in five to 10 years. Most people scope them in five years. We're, uh, we're going to see changes in these recommendations, but probably this group is going to have that interval recommendation expanded. And then there's a group that is at higher risk. And what we see in the United States is underuse and overuse. So when you get people in your practice that you see they've had a large polyp, and, uh, or maybe it's had high-grade dysplasia in it, and then they've fallen out of surveillance, those are the people that you really want to get back into it. 
The other group, though, you see they've got precancerous pops, but they were just little small things. And we're trying to, to back off on that group of people, and you need to back off too. Don't, don't uh, you know, suggest that that has that much significance. We're going to be expanding the intervals in that group. We think they're at, at low risk. So I hope that's a, a good overview. I, I tried to give you a sense of these precancerous lesions. I definitely want to encourage you to do uh, screening to help us you know, try to get these screening rates up. I think the main things to rely on are colonoscopy and FIT, but ColoGuard, patients come and ask for it. I think it's important to understand it, and it does have some advantages as well as disadvantages. And colonoscopy, no matter how you screen, is a critical part of the chain of, of diagnosis and, and prevention. And we want to have very high-quality colonoscopy. So thank you, and I hope we do we have time for a, a question or two. Thank you. We do. I just wanted to make one statement that Lynn Butterly has been tracking for over a decade all of the colon adenoma detection rates of our whole state, all of the yeah. hospitals across the state. So we actually do know interinstitutional differences. We know interpersonal uh, variation and detection rates as well. And everybody gets their own numbers, so they should know their numbers. Yeah, Lynn, Lynn and Joe have produced some phenomenal uh, data that, you know, we, we have these recommendations with regard to withdrawal time, and uh, originally they were made up. I made, them, I made all that stuff up, uh, and now we've got evidence, and it sort of suggests, you know, what the ideal thing is, and, and these guys have been critical in that. Yes, sir. I, I just want to follow up on that interesting point. Like, if we have all these data, I mean, I worked on the EMR. We could, we could publish those AER rates. And when people are ordered and putting their referrals, has anybody actually done that? I mean, that sounds like a fairly could be challenging for the group, or you know, to sort of. I think I think you know, right now we're in a period where each group is deciding what they want to do and how they want to handle it. But you know, that's one of the things in healthcare that that is being emphasized that we want to be more transparent. So we have seen uh, there's a big group in Minneapolis that has like 60 gastroenterologists. They have when you say published, they have a pamphlet that's available that has it. Uh, there, there are some other groups that have created websites that have their their uh, ADRs uh, on them. So I'd say you know talk about it and uh, and work together. But uh, it's a good incentive for everybody to improve their ADR. There's a group in Illinois that found that as soon as they put their ADRs on their websites, everybody's ADR started getting better. So. <laughs> <laughs> other questions?